So what happens when you give young people a camera? <laughs> but you got the message, that's working. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. I'm Greg Paris. A beautiful day. I hope that you're well. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and we're glad in it. Uh, two things. Uh, it's, it's Veterans Day. Uh, veterans in the room, we want to say thank you to you. Yeah, let's give them a nice a warm thank you. We honor your service. We appreciate all that you do and have done on behalf of our nation. And we pause to be grateful to you. Thanks. Uh, second uh, word of appreciation and congratulations to all of us Cub fans. Yeah, come on now. That's it. Right. I've been told by three different people this morning that there are 108 stitches in a baseball. Someone's been touting that oddity of a fact and of course it was 108 years <laughs> between World Series victories for the Cubs. Nevertheless uh, we're all celebrating. You may have seen the celebration in Chicago two days ago where an estimated 5 million people gathered for the parade and the, and the celebration with the team. Uh, that's an astonishing number. In fact uh, it may be historic. Some are suggesting that it may be the largest single gathering of people one place at one time in the history of our nation and maybe top 10 uh, in world history of people gathering together at the same place at the same time. It's a very interesting, interesting phenomenon and of course it's a celebration of the Cubs who deserve it but it's also an indication that people really have an innate God-given need to worship to celebrate. We all have that. And of course, the great challenge for us in the church is to challenge people to consider Jesus Christ as the object of our affection and our devotion and our worship. Uh, but people are going to worship one way or the other, and that may be an example of it. But we celebrate with all the Cub fans. All of us uh, who've been Cub fans for a long, long time have a lot of stories to tell. Uh, I called up my 84-year-old father and... and uh, celebrated with him. You know, he took me to Wrigley Field when I was 12 years old, and we have this lifetime of suffering. <laughs> so, and so it was, a, it was just a great, great experience. So congratulations to all of you. Now today we want to we talk about what it means to be great. God wants you to be great. Every one of you wants you to be great. Now, before you jump into that, what I want to do today is actually help us understand and define what God believes to be great, what makes us great. And once we understand God's definition of greatness, then you can decide whether or not you want to be great. Uh, but he has an idea on that, and I want to talk about it a little bit this morning. So we've chosen as our text this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 20 to 28, and we're going to use uh, this passage of Scripture as an expository uh, text, and we're just going to go verse by verse, pick up uh, the meaning, try to explain what it means, and make some points along the way so that we get to, this end of the, uh, to the end and understand what being great truly is. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 20, and our custom here is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. Beginning at verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. 
Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Listen, let me just say that God is not looking for people who are powerful. He's not looking for people who are exceptionally gifted. He's not looking for people who are all uh, polished up and, and sparkly and shiny in all kinds of different ways. He is looking for people who will give themselves in meaningful service to God and to others. And his eyes are looking for people like that. Now you see on your outline three ideas, and we'll go through these verses as I mentioned. And the first point that I want to make is that greatness is not a position. You should write that down. It's not a position. Now verse 20 from our text, we have the mother of James and John. Her name was Salome. And Salome is a somewhat prominent figure in the New Testament because Salome is a good friend of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We know that they are close because we find Salome standing with Mary at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion. And so we see her as a devout person, as a committed person, a follower of Jesus. And she has these two boys who are in the inner circle with Jesus, the ones that are perhaps most close to him with Peter, James, and John. And so James and John are the two sons of this woman, Salome. And Salome comes with her two boys in tow to approach Jesus. And she's obviously got some personality strength. She's got some moxie. And you might think, you know, this strong, domineering mother type with these two boys, the two boys might be weak, but they're not. They've got their own fight and fuss in them and, and their own vinegar because uh, one of the New Testament writers labels James and John the sons of thunder. And so, you know, they've got some spunk. In one occasion in Luke chapter 9, we find Jesus and James and John, some of the boys, passing through the region of Samaria, and the Samaritans didn't like them much and were pushing back against the ministry of Jesus and his group. And so James and John just turn to Jesus and say, why don't we just call down fire on them? And Jesus turns to James and John and says, you guys cut that out. That's, that's not our style. That's not our deal. And so these guys, you know, these guys are full of it too. So Salome brings these two boys to Jesus. In verse 21, Jesus sees them coming and says to their mother, what do you want? Now, if you read the, read the red letters of the words of Jesus in the New Testament, and you think that he's always using this silky uh, God tone, uh, yes, what might I do for you? Uh, you'll miss the humanity of this moment. My hunch is this isn't the first time Salome had approached Jesus with some kind of question. And so you can't pretty up Jesus' response here. He says, yeah, what do you want? Or what do you want? And so it's kind of pointed. Uh, we had a woman in the church years ago, and she would often come to me and ask questions. Uh, Pastor Greg, would you do me a favor? Pastor Greg, I have a question to ask. And 
I learned over time that this woman actually wasn't asking a question. She was telling me what she expected. She was putting in her order. And so after I figured this out, she came to me one day, and she was always very polite, always very pious, you know, just very cool demeanor and calm and warm. And so she came up to me one day, and she said, Pastor Greg, I'd like to ask you a favor. And I said, hold it. Before you ask the favor, if my answer includes the possibility of me saying, if I'm free to say no, then you can ask me the question. And she looked at me very incredulously. Her mouth fell open. She couldn't believe it. What do you mean you'll say no to me? I said, if I have the freedom to say no to your question, I don't know what your question is, but if I'm free to say no to you, then you can go ahead and ask the question. If I'm not free to say no as well as yes, I don't need to hear your question. And she turned away from me, did not ask her question, ask her favor, and she never asked me another question. And so sometimes you see them coming. And so questions may have kind of a, kind of a double meaning there. And so Salome comes to Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want? Because <laughs> he's a little suspicious. She said, well, here's what I want. It's not a big thing, and I'm sure you can accommodate very easily. As you know, you're very close friends with my boys, James and John. And so if you could manage, you know, your kingdom is coming in your kingdom, if you could have one of them sit on your right hand and one on your left hand. I know titles aren't important to you, but maybe COO and CFO would be fine. Or if, if that's too much, maybe just executive vice presidents, something to that effect, if you don't mind. In other words, she was saying, look, I don't, I don't want my sons to serve. I want my sons to be served. Jesus then responds to her, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're saying. In other words, he's, he's saying, you don't know about me that I'm going to be tortured and mocked and beaten and crucified. In other words, he's asking, you want some of that? He asks out loud, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And of course, his implication here is that there's a cup of suffering that's coming. Jesus used the same symbolism in his prayer at Gethsemane, remember when he was sweating great drops of blood and he prayed and agonized and said, God, if this cup can pass from me. So we understand that he's referring to the suffering that he's going to endure. And so he asked, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And before he has time to explain it, the two boys, James and John, said, we can. You know, no big deal, not a thing, will do, no problem. Of course, we find later in Matthew chapter 26, the last phrase of that chapter, this is after the arrest of Jesus, and the Bible says, then all the disciples left him and fled. Verse 23, Jesus said, well, okay, you say you can drink from the same cup I'm drinking from. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left hand, that's not for me to say. That's up to the Father. And as it turns out, they did drink from the cup of suffering in Acts chapter 12, we find that James, one of these brothers, was beheaded for Jesus' sake. And we know that the younger brother, John, was banished in exile to an island called Patmos, where he lived out his days under house arrest there. And in that, in that exile, he also received what we have now as the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. Interesting. He knew it beforehand. Here's what I want to say. You can be the pastor of a church, even a a big church, and not be great. You can be the president of a university. You can, you can be the CEO of a great company. 
You can, you can hold the highest office in the land. You can, you can be a very popular athlete or an exceptional, an exceptional entertainer. You can be all of those things and not be great, not according to God's definition of greatness. And it's important for us to know that greatness then is not a position. It's not a role. Jesus was not looking for someone to sit on his right and his left. He's looking for someone who would serve, someone who would give, someone who would suffer. And now we begin to get greatness defined. And some of you aren't real enthralled, enthralled with the message right now, and I understand that it's not easy to hear, and maybe it's a little provocative, and you, you, you've never heard uh, this definition of greatness before. And so maybe your intention is just to check out. You know, you're thinking about lunch right now. You're thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon. The colts don't come on until later, so you've still got a little free time, and so you've got to sort that out. So you've got things you can think about and do. So if you're not going to listen to me for the last half of the message, let me just pause here kind of do a touching goal. So let me touch and just summarize the message up to this point. Here's the take home if you're not going to follow the rest. Find something you can do and do it. Find something that you can do to serve God and serve the people around you, and then do it. And if you're a person who's tempted with the idea that, that part of my motive is to increase my status or my recognition or my position, would, if you could put that aside, don't even put that on the list. Don't, don't make that a goal as part of this process. Just find something you can do and give yourself to it. So there, there's, the, there's the assimilation. There's the take-home. There's the application of the message. All right, now let's touch and just go. Here's number two in your outline. Greatness is not about position, and neither is it about power. Not about power. Verse 24, when the ten heard about this, in other words, that James and John had gone to Jesus and say, hey, can we sit at your right and left hands? When the, when the other ten heard about this, they were ticked. They were indignant. They were PO'd. I mean, imagine you're the captain of your high school basketball team, and you hear one of your teammates come by the coach's office and you overhear them say, I don't think that so-and-so should be the captain any longer. I should be the captain. How would you feel about that? Or if you just happened by your boss's office and no one was there and you couldn't help but see this little note front and center on your boss's desk and you couldn't help but see it and you read it and it was from one of your coworkers saying, I don't think you should get the promotion and the raise in salary. I think I should get it. And you would be understandably upset. You would be angry. And so Jesus steps into the middle of that, seeing that the ten are upset and angry. Verse 25 says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Look, sinners rule over other people all over the place. It's kind of the way of the world. There's always this control and manipulation and jockeying for position and trying to trying to get in a favorable way it happens it happens in business it happens at the university it happens in athletics it's it's when people kiss up to the boss trying to get a promotion it's when people butter up the teacher you know trying to get a better grade or saddle up to the coach to get more playing time this happens all the time in the world that's what Jesus was saying and there are people that he was suggesting when they're given a little authority or a little power, they abuse it. Have you ever seen that? When someone's given just a little authority and then they can't resist the temptation to exercise it any chance they get? 
<laughs> Some of you know that Beth and I own this home uh, down on a lake in southern Indiana. It's where Beth has been convalescing during her treatments. And several years ago, we were out on our boat. Uh, our, uh, our boat is, uh, we named it Visitation. Uh, and that way, when people call in the office and they say, is the pastor there, the secretary can say, no, he's out on Visitation. And it makes everybody happy. So it works for everyone. So we were out on visitation. It was early in the spring. It was one of the first spring days in warm sun after a long winter. And we were enjoying some warmth. And our lake is private. If you don't own property there, you can't access the water. And, and because of its privacy, it also has a number of rules. In fact, there's a whole rule book that you have to memorize so you can, can work on the lake. And one of the rules, which makes perfect sense, is that there's the larger body of the lake where you can go fast in your boat and do whatever you want to do that way. And that is all identified by these series of buoys that outline the main lake. And these buoys then rest at the mouth of all of these inlets and these coves. And, and so one of the rules is, common sense, that if you're going to park your boat and just float it or anchor your boat somewhere and sit there for a while, you need to be inside of the buoys, not outside of the buoys where the main lake is and people are going fast. And so common sense, we got it, I got it. So it was one of those days, no one else was on the lake. We're the only boat on the lake. And, and most of the people that we hire to run the patrol boat to enforce the rules on the lake are good and gracious people and, and their neighbors and all that. But occasionally, we'll hire a Bubba to enforce the lake rules. And so Bubba was sitting near where we had decided to park the boat. And he was over by the patrol boat and sitting on the on the pier there, and he was watching this whole thing. And so Beth and I came in. We decided we're going to park in this particular cove, and we went inside the buoys as is proper, dropped the anchor, and we're just sitting there minding our own business. And it was also early in the season, as I mentioned, and that day the conservancy decided that we're going to reset the buoys for the summer season. And so here comes, here comes this uh, little boat now with two guys in it, this pontoon, and they're resetting the buoys. And they come right over to where our buoys are, and we're sitting inside the buoys. And Bubba's watching this whole thing. It takes 30 minutes, and the two guys move the buoys about 20 feet. And now the boat that we're in is not actually inside the buoys. We're right on the line. So that part of our boat is kind of hanging over the line. And as soon as the pontoon leaves, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I wonder what Bubba's going to do. Bubba jumps in the patrol boat, races over to our boat, and starts lecturing me on the rules about parking your boat inside the buoys. <laughs> now here's how you can know if you have a servant heart. This is how you know. It's when people treat you like a servant. When people start treating you like a subservient, that's when you know if you actually have a heart of a servant. I wasn't wearing my What Would Jesus Do bracelet that day. And when Bubba started treating me like a servant, I decided that Bubba was a little too big for his pants because he's, he's abusing his authority. I said, you saw the whole thing. You saw what is it about the sequence of events that makes you think that I don't understand the rules. I don't know what you understand or what you don't understand. All I know is the rule states that you might blah, 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 blah. 
Now here's, here's something that I, I'm just, I'm confessing my sin and I'm giving you a heads up. If you ever find yourself in a situation similar to what I'm describing, do not accuse the person in authority of being much like Deputy Barney Fife. That is not, I'm just telling you, that doesn't work out well. It was accurate, but not helpful. And so what we learn from this is that there are people who are given a little authority and they will abuse it. And Jesus was saying that's the way it is in the world. And there are people here in the room in our, in our church, obviously, who have authority and have power, have position in life, and you have people underneath you. And let me just give you a, a few pointers on what it looks like when you're abusing your authority. I'll put these on the screen for you. A, you keep reminding people of your position. But listen, if you have to remind people you're the leader, you're probably not the leader. Wait a minute, I'm in charge here. Or you insist on being called doctor so-and-so or reverend so-and-so. Some of you maybe don't know me well enough, but I don't, I don't really need to be called reverend. In fact, I don't prefer it. In fact, I don't, even, I don't like it to be called reverend. Uh, the best I can tell, there's only one guy who's lived on this planet who deserves to be revered, and his name is Jesus. And the rest of us just have stinky feet, like everyone else. We're just, we're just folks. And so I don't do reverend. Well, you, you can call me by my name. My name is Greg. So if you come up to me, you don't know me, just say Greg. Or if you want to say Pastor Greg, that's okay, but that's up to you, not necessary. But if you find yourself needing to be recognized, you know, Chairman Smith, you know, Dr. So-and-so, it's a bad sign. Then B, when you expect or demand privilege, you know, I, I have this position, so I get the right parking space, the status at the table, the seats at the concert, all that stuff. Or C, you become comfortable with personal praise. Now, that doesn't mean you're not gracious when people thank you or express appreciation to you for something that you've done well, because that's their gracious thing to do. But it's when someone walks up to you and thanks you or appreciates you, and the first thought in your mind, the first thought that comes to you is good for you. You finally figured out how special I am. Or, yeah, I guess I really am something. I'm all that in a bag of chips. If that's happening to you, it could be that you're abusing your authority a bit. And then D, uh, you resent or react to challenges to your authority. If you use your position as your primary point of persuasion in a, in a moment of conflict or contention, it's not good. You feel threatened every time you're asked a question. You, you hear yourself respond, I'm the chairman of this committee. Not, probably out of balance. Probably off base a little bit. Then the last one, E, is you become unmoved by an individual's pain. And kind of an extreme example of this is when the general sends his troops into a battle and some of those troops are killed or maybe even civilians are injured or hurt as well and you have collateral damage and the general really doesn't care about that. If you ramp it down a little bit, it's the, it's the professor who doesn't have time for the student. It's the pastor who doesn't really care about the needs of the people. And that's a sign when you're unmoved by the pain of others. And so these are ways that you can kind of measure your own balance when you have been given positions of authority. Well, you know where this is leading, and so we get to the third point here, and as we work our way through this text, the third and last point is that greatness really is about serving. 
And so Jesus said in verses 26 and 27, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, here's what Jesus is saying to all of us, because he wants us all to be great. He has hope for us that we'll be better than we really are, that there is hope for us that we will exercise our responsibilities in authority over our natural inclinations to want to get in a position or to get leveraged or to get some, some, uh, some special attention. He has a hope for me that I will pursue true greatness, even though the world gives me so many examples of selfish ambition. Because it's rampant. Uh, You'll not demand your own way. You won't abuse your authority. You won't hold the failures of the people around you against them. You will operate as a servant. Let me ask you this. Who's the greatest person in your family? I can tell you who it is in God's eyes. It's the servant. Who's the greatest person in our church? Who's the greatest person in our church? I can tell you who it isn't. It's probably for sure no one up on the platform, no one where the lights are shining. What turns God on, what lights his fire, are people who are willing to serve when no one really notices. That's where God pauses and he goes, she is great. He is great. That's real greatness. So this is how it plays out, friends, in our lives. You become the servant to your patience a servant to your clients, a servant to your customers, a servant to your students, a servant to your parishioners, a servant to your neighbor, a servant to your community. That's when you become great. That's when you start to move the meter in in God's greatness scale. You know, the world has a lot of problems. Would you agree? We got problems. Now, I will say that the universe has been reset. I did mention the Cubs won the World Series. So every, there's like a rip in the universe. The cosmos has been distorted slightly because the Cubs won the World Series. It's even surreal to say it out loud. But it's actually happened. So the, the world has reset. But in spite of that, there's still problems, big problems. For example, there are a lot of people in poverty in our world. In fact, half of the world's population is in poverty. Now, I'm not talking about poor people in the United States because that's relative poverty. Even though that's sad and pitiful in a lot of cases, people in the United States who are below the poverty line, these are people who have a cell phone, have a TV, have access to a car, that sort of thing. But there are 2.8 billion people in the world who live on about $2 per day. Half of them live on about $1 per day. There's an estimated 211 million children between the ages of 5 and 14 who have to go to work every day just to make a living for themselves and their families. Half of those children, over 100 million children or so, actually go to work in places that are dangerous for them. Just as sure as we are sitting in this room today in this climate-controlled, comfortable room, there's a child somewhere in the world, five, six, seven, eight years old, who will die today because they've been hurt and killed trying to work their way for some food. So poverty is a big problem. There are issues of health in our world that's a big problem. For example, there are 36 million cases of AIDS in the world, 4 million new cases of HIV every every year in the world. There are 1.8 million children who have HIV. 
contracted it from their mothers during pregnancy or childbirth or during breastfeeding, children who suffer with HIV. It's a big problem. There's also an educational problem in our world. Listen to this number. There are 775 million adults in the world that are illiterate. 775. Can't read or write. 14% of adults in the United States are illiterate. That's a staggering number to me. Globally, there are about 122 million youth who cannot read or write. If you gave one of these teenagers a Bible, they wouldn't know what to do with it. It's a big problem. Another big problem in our world is genocide. Do you feel the weight of all these problems? Genocide, the 20th century, some of you are sophisticated enough to know that this is true, was the bloodiest century in all of world history. Mao killed 73 million of his own people in China during his reign. Stalin, another 60 million in Russia. Hitler in World War II took the lives of 50 million people. That's saying nothing of Serbia and Japan and Cambodia and Bosnia and North Korea and Rwanda and Nigeria at the same time period. 20th century was horrible. And now in the 21st century, we have civil war breaking out all over the globe, leading masses of human beings being refugeed from Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. At any given moment, there are approximately 43 million people who have been displaced from their country of origin. 43 million. Christians are being martyred in our world today. Men and women and children by ISIS, other radical Islamic terrorist militants throughout the Middle East, North Africa, being beheaded and stoned and burned alive and crucified. It's horrible. It's a big problem. Perhaps the biggest problem in our world today is this absence of peace, this absence of the gospel. The reason why people are so contentious and at odds with one another, the reason there's so much conflict between races and genders and countries and religions and on and on these divisions go is because people don't have peace. And the reason they don't have peace in their heart is because they don't know the prince of peace. And so perhaps the greatest and arguably the greatest need in all the world, the biggest problem that needs to be solved is to offer the hope that's that is found alone in Jesus Christ, the prince of peace, to bring peace to the human heart, therefore peace in relationships. And when you hear about all these problems, it's easy to get overwhelmed, isn't it? Do you feel overwhelmed? You say, gee whiz, millions and billions. I mean, you just think about the, the sheer weight of, of need and issues and problems that exist in our world. And it's easy for us just to, just to feel that and to ask the question, what can I do? And most people just conclude by whining about it. Well, Big problems in our own country. Wah. 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 Hear them all the time. They're on the news 24-7 now. Because we're all up to here with this whole thing. Wah. You hear them? Wah. How's that working for you? Is that solving anything? Crying about, crying about their problems? Wah. It seems kind of childish, doesn't it? Wah. Looks almost like a three-year-old, doesn't it? It doesn't help. It's not good. It doesn't help. And so people need to stop crying about the problems. Then people, people find themselves complaining about it. Same things like stupid world, sick world, fallen world, evil world, crazy world. The world's a crazy place. And so they just complain, complain about it. This is what older Hoosiers do. They start, especially in a political season, they start complaining about all the problems 
as, in, as preparation for retiring and moving to Florida where they will complain about the government full time. This is what they will do now for the, for the rest of their lives. Is complain. But complaining about it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help. It doesn't get you anywhere. And then folks go from complaining to criticizing. Well, they wouldn't be in that kind of mess, all these poor people with all these problems around the world if they weren't, if they weren't so sinful and weren't for, so lazy and so slothful. And so you hear all this complaining going on, pointing the finger at other people for their problems, criticizing them. And then that leads to cynicism. And you hear people saying this all the time. The world's going over the falls, going to hell on a handbasket. I can't do a thing. It's all over. There's no use in trying. I'm not even going to vote. That's it. I'm not voting. I'm so cynical. I'm not going to vote. What, what, what good does that do? Get you anywhere. You can cry about it. You can complain about it. You can criticize people over it. You can become cynical about it. But none of those things make any significant difference with the problems. There is only one good choice. There's only one thing you can do. And if you'll choose to do this, it will actually get you someplace. It may even get you a long ways down the road to feeling overwhelmed by the problems that exist in the world. And that choice is the choice to serve. I choose to serve. I'm going to serve. I'm going to make a difference anywhere I can. I'm going to volunteer to help. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to sign up. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do some things, and it may, maybe won't make a big difference in the world, but it's going to make a small difference in my world. I can't change the world, but I can change my own destiny. I choose to be a servant. And let me just say to those of you in the room today who are followers of Jesus Christ, your Christian life will never make sense to you until you learn to serve and that you learn to serve with joy. You will never find your life, your meaning, your purpose until you give your life away in meaningful service to others. Your Christian life will always be some obligation you feel or some project you have to complete or some duty that you're bound to or some burden or something that I'm supposed to. I'm a Christian, so I'm supposed to do this. It will always be duty and not delight until you serve God with all of your heart. That's where life is found. That's where meaning is found. And in the face of all the problems that we can clearly see in our world today, it's the one choice that can really make a difference. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to be like Jesus. Yeah. I hear people now come to me all the time. I'm trying to decide if God has called me into ministry full time. Yes. Yes, he's called you. Now, he may not have called you into full time vocational ministry, but he's called you. Yeah, you're on the team. Yes, you are called. Yes, God includes you to serve. In fact, you could say that you are most like Jesus when you are serving. Let me ask you, who, who, deserved, who deserved preferential treatment more than anyone who's ever lived? You know the answer. His name is Jesus. He's the guy. I mean, didn't he deserve it? Didn't he deserve the place of honor? Didn't he deserve the place of privilege? Shouldn't he be given the choicest food, the choicest accommodations? Isn't he the one who most deserves it? But here's what the Bible says. Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable that the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords humbled himself in order to serve all of us. 
And that's the call then he gives to each of us. And this is, this is the definition he leaves us with. If you want to be great, if you want to be great, learn how to serve. One more verse, I'll put it on the screen for you, just for your perspective. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all your might, for it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Isn't that great? That's perspective, isn't it? That's a real upgrade in your life to become like Jesus. And you're most like him when you serve. I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment. The answer is, I got it. You ready? Here's the question. The answer is, I got it. You ready? Here's the question. Did you get it? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your goodness, for your word, which lamps our feet and lights our way. We thank you, God, for the insight that's so clear that you call us to serve, that we can choose to serve. So God, fill us with a desire to serve, a hunger to serve, a passion to serve. Help us to see that as we serve, we're, we're actually honoring you and fulfilling our own purpose. It gives us significance and perspective and meaning. Lord, in so many ways, we are given life because we model your life of service. So help us today, oh God, to be men and women who are willing to serve and choose to serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. All right, would you stand with us as we sing?